Section 36 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1 by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 17, Part 2 through Erzingen and Erzeram. Nothing in the way of bedding or furniture is provided in the caravanserai rooms, but the proprietor gets me plenty of quilts, and I pass a reasonably comfortable night. In the morning I obtain breakfast and manage to escape from town without attracting a crowd of more than a couple of hundred people, a remarkable occurrence in its way, since Erzingen contains a population of about twenty thousand. The road eastward from Erzingen is level, but heavy with dust, leading through a low portion of the valley that earlier in the season is swampy, and gives the city an unenviable reputation for malarial fevers. To prevent the travelers drinking the unwholesome water in this part of the valley, some benevolent Mussulman or public-spirited pasha has erected at intervals, by the roadside, compact mud huts and placed there in huge earthenware vessels holding perhaps fifty gallons each these are kept supplied with pure spring water and provided with a wooden drinking scoop fourteen miles from erzingen at the entrance to a ravine whence flows the boisterous stream that supplies a goodly proportion of the irrigating water for the valley is situated a military outpost station my road runs within two hundred yards of the building and the officers seeing me evidently intending to pass without stopping motion for me to halt i know well enough they want to examine my passport and also to satisfy their curiosity concerning the bicycle but determine upon spurting ahead and escaping their bother altogether this movement at once arouses the official suspicion as to my being in the country without proper authority and causes them to attach some mysterious significance to my strange vehicle and several soldiers forthwith receive racing orders to intercept me unfortunately my spurting receives a prompt check at the stream which is not bridged and here the doughty warriors intercept my progress taking me into custody with broad grins of satisfaction as though pretty certain of having made an important capture since there is no escaping i conclude to have a little quiet amusement out of the affair anyway so i refuse point-blank to accompany my captors to their officer knowing full well that any show of reluctance will have the very natural effect of arousing their suspicion still further the bland and childlike soldiers of the crescent receive this show of obstinacy quite complacently their swarthy countenances wreathed in knowing smiles but they make no attempt at compulsion satisfying themselves with addressing me deferentially as effendi and trying to coax me to accompany them seeing that there is some difficulty about bringing me the two officers come down and i at once affect righteous indignation of a mild order and desire to know what they mean by arresting my progress they demand my tescari in a manner that plainly shows their doubts of my having one the tescari is produced one of the officers then whispers something to the other and they both glance knowingly mysterious at the bicycle apologize for having detained me and want to shake hands 
having read the passport and satisfied themselves of my nationality they attach some deep mysterious significance to my journey in this incomprehensible manner up in this particular quarter but they no longer wish to offer any impediment to my progress but rather to render me assistance poor fellows how suspicious they are of their great overgrown neighbor to the north what good-humored fellows these turkish soldiers are what simple-hearted overgrown children what a pity that they are the victims of a criminally incompetent government that neither pays feeds nor clothes them a quarter as well as they deserve in their fearful winters of erzurum they have been known to have no clothing to wear but the linen suits provided for the hot weather their pay insignificant though it be is as uncertain as gambling but they never raise a murmur being by nature and religion fatalists they cheerfully accept these undeserved hardships as the will of allah to-day is the hottest i have experienced in asia minor and soon after leaving the outpost i once more encounter the everlasting mountains follow now the trebizond and erzingen caravan trail once again i get benighted in the mountains and push ahead for some time after dark i am beginning to think of camping out supperless again when i hear the creaking of a buffalo araba some distance ahead soon i overtake it and following it for half a mile off the trail i find myself before an enclosure of several acres surrounded by a high stone wall with quite imposing gateways it is the walled village of hasobegan one of those places built especially for the accommodation of the trebizond caravans in the winter i am conducted into a large apartment which appears to be set apart for the hospitable accommodation of travellers the apartment is found already occupied by three travellers who from their outward appearance might well be taken for cutthroats of the worst description and the villagers swarming in i am soon surrounded by the usual ragged flea-bitten congregation there are various arms and warlike accoutrements hanging on the wall enough of one kind or another to arm a small company they all belong to the three travellers however my modest little revolver seems really nothing compared with the warlike display of swords daggers pistols and guns hanging around the place looks like a small armory the first question is as is usual of late rus or ingilis some of the younger and less experienced men essay to doubt my word and on their own supposition that i am a russian begin to take unwarrantable liberties with my person one of them steals up behind and commences playing a tattoo on my helmet with two sticks of wood by way of bravado and showing his contempt for a subject of the tsar turning around i take one of the sticks away and chastise him with it until he howls for allah to protect him and then without attempting any sort of explanation to the others resume my seat one of the travellers then solemnly places his forefingers together and announces himself as kardash my brother at the same time pointing significantly to his choice assortment of ancient weapons i shake hands with him and remind him that i am somewhat hungry whereupon he orders a villager to forthwith contribute six eggs another butter to fry them in and a third bread a tezek fire is already burning and with his own hands he fries the eggs and makes my ragged audience stand at a respectful distance while i eat if i were to ask him he would probably clear the room of them instanter
About ten o'clock my impromptu friend and his companion ordered their horses and buckled their arms and accoutrement about them to depart. My brother stands before me and loads up his flintlock rifle. It is a fearful and wonderful process. It takes him at least two minutes. He does not seem to know on which particular part of his wonderful paraphernalia to find the slugs, the powder, or the patching, and he finishes by tearing a piece of rag off a bystanding villager to place over the powder in the pan. While he is doing all this, and especially when ramming home the bullet, he looks at me as though expecting me to come and pat him approvingly on the shoulder. When they are gone, the third traveller, who is going to remain overnight, edges up beside me, and, pointing to his own imposing armory, likewise announces himself as my brother. Thus do I unexpectedly acquire two brothers within the brief space of an evening. The villagers scatter to their respective quarters. Quilts are provided for me, and a ghostly light is maintained by means of a cup of grease and a twisted rag. In one corner of the room is a paunchy youngster of ten or twelve summers, whom I noticed during the evening as being without a single garment to cover his nakedness. He has partly inserted himself into a largo, coarse nose-bag, and lies curled up in that ridiculous position, probably imagining himself in quite comfortable quarters. O oh, wretched youth! I mentally exclaim. What will you do when that nose-bag has petered out? And soon afterward I fall asleep, in happy consciousness of perfect security beneath the protecting shadow of brother number two and his formidable armament of ancient weapons. Ten miles of good rideable road from housing Begham, I again descend into the valley of the west fork of the Euphrates, crossing the river on an ancient stone bridge. I left Hausenbeckan without breakfasting, preferring to make my customary early start and trust to luck. I am beginning to doubt the propriety of having done so, and find myself casting involuntary glances toward a Kurdish camp that is visible some miles to the north of my route, when, upon rounding a mountain spur jutting out into the valley, I descry the minaret of Mamakatun in the distance ahead. A minaret hereabout is a sure indication of a town of sufficient importance to support a public eating khan, where, if not a very elegant, at least a substantial meal is to be obtained. I obtain an acceptable breakfast of kebabs and boiled sheep's trotters. Killing two birds with one stone by satisfying my own appetite, and at the same time giving a first-class entertainment to a khan full of wondering-eyed people, by eating with a khanji's carving knife and fork in preference to my fingers. Here, as at Hausenbeck Khan, there is a splendid large caravanserai. Here it is built chiefly of hewn stone, and almost massive enough for a fortress. This is a mountainous elevated region, where the winters are stormy and severe, and these commodious and substantial retreats are absolutely necessary for the safety of Erzingen and Trebizond caravans during the winter. The country now continues hilly rather than mountainous. The road is generally too heavy with sand and dust, churned up by the Erzingen mule caravans, to admit of riding wherever the grade is unfavorable but much good wheeling service is encountered on long, gentle declivities and comparatively level stretches. During the forenoon I meet a company of three splendidly armed and mounted Circassians. They remain speechless with astonishment until I have passed beyond their hearing. 
They then conclude among themselves that I am something needing investigation. They come galloping after me, and having caught up, their spokesman gravely delivers himself of the solitary monosyllable, Rus? Ingles? I reply, and they resume the even tenor of their way without questioning me further. Later in the day, the hilly country develops into a mountainous region, where the trail intersects numerous deep ravines whose sides are all but perpendicular. Between the ravines, the riding is oft-times quite excellent, the composition being soft shale, that packs down hard and smooth beneath the animal's feet. Deliciously cool streams flow at the bottom of these ravines. At one crossing, I find an old man washing his feet, and mournfully surveying sundry holes in the bottom of his sandals. The day is hot, and I likewise halt a few minutes to cool my pedal extremities in the crystal water. With that childlike simplicity I have so often mentioned, and which is nowhere encountered as in the Asiatic Turk, the old fellow blandly asks me to exchange my comparatively sound moccasins for his worn-out sandals, at the same time ruefully pointing out the dilapidated condition of the latter and looking as dejected as though it were the only pair of sandals in the world. This afternoon I am passing along the same road where Mahmoud Ali's gang robbed a large party of Armenian harvesters who had been south to help harvest the wheat, and were returning home in a body with the wages earned during the summer. This happened but a few days before, and notwithstanding the well-known saying that lightning never strikes twice in the same place, one is scarcely so unimpressionable as not to find himself involuntarily scanning his surroundings, half expecting to be attacked. Nothing startling turns up, however, and at five o'clock I come to a village which is enveloped in clouds of wheat chaff. Being a breezy evening, winnowing is going briskly forward on several threshing floors. After duly binning, I am taken under the protecting wing of a prominent villager who is walking about with his hand in a sling, the reason whereof is a crushed finger. He is a sensible, intelligent fellow, and accepts my reply that I am not a crushed finger Hakim with all reasonableness. He provides a substantial supper of bread and yaourt, and then installs me in a small, windowless, unventilated apartment adjoining the buffalo stall provides me with quilts, lights a primitive grease lamp, and retires. During the evening, the entire female population visit my dimly lighted quarters to satisfy their feminine curiosity by taking a timid peep at their neighbor's strange guest and his wonderful araba. They imagine I am asleep and come on tiptoe part way across the room, craning their necks to obtain a view in the semi-darkness. An hour's journey from this village brings me yet again into the west Euphrates Valley. Just where I enter the valley, the river spreads itself over a wide stony bed, coursing along in the form of several comparatively small streams. There is, of course, no bridge here, and in the chilly, almost frosty morning, I have to disrobe and carry clothes and bicycle across the several channels. Once across, I find myself on the great Trebizond and Persian caravan route and in a few minutes am partaking of breakfast in a village thirty-five miles from Erzeran, where I learn with no little satisfaction that my course follows along the Euphrates Valley, with an artificial wagon road, the whole distance to the city. Not far from the village the Euphrates is recrossed on a new stone bridge. 
Just beyond the bridge is the camp of a road engineer's party, who are putting the finishing touches to the bridge. A person issues from one of the tents as I approach, and begins chattering away at me in French. The face and voice indicates a female, but the costume consists of jack-boots, tight-fitting broadcloth pantaloons, an ordinary pilot jacket, and a fez. Notwithstanding the masculine apparel, however, it turns out not only to be a woman, but a Parisienne, the better half of the Erzurum road engineer, a Frenchman, who now appears upon the scene. They are both astonished and delighted at seeing a velocipede, a reminder of their own far-off France, on the Persian caravan trail, and they urge me to remain and partake of coffee. I now encounter the first really great camel caravans, en route to Persia with tea and sugar and general European merchandise. They are all camped for the day alongside the road, and the camels scattered about the neighboring hills in search of giant thistles and other outlandish vegetation, for which the patient ship of the desert entertains a partiality. Camel caravans travel entirely at night during the summer. Contrary to what, I think, is a common belief in the Occident, they can endure any amount of cold weather, but are comparatively distressed by the heat. Still, this may not characterize all breeds of camels any more than the different breeds of other domesticated animals. During the summer, when the camels are required to find their own sustenance along the road, a large caravan travels but a wretched eight miles a day, the remainder of the time being occupied in filling his capacious thistle and camel-thorn receptacle. This comes of the scarcity of good grazing along the route compared with the number of camels, and the consequent necessity of wandering far and wide in search of pasturage, rather than because of the camel's absorbative capacity, for he is a comparatively abstemious animal. In the winter they are fed on balls of barley flour, called nawala. On this they keep fat and strong, and travel three times the distance. The average load of a full-grown camel is about 700 pounds. Before reaching Erzurum, I have a narrow escape from what might have proved a serious accident. I meet a buffalo araba carrying a long projecting stick of timber. The sleepy buffaloes pay no heed to the bicycle until I arrive opposite their heads, when they give a sudden lurch sidewise, swinging the stick of timber across my path. Fortunately, the road happens to be of good width, and by a very quick swerve I avoid a collision but the tail end of the timber just brushes the rear wheel as I wheel past. Soon afternoon I roll into Erzurum, or rather up to the Trebizond Gate, and dismount. Erzurum is a fortified city of considerable importance, both from a commercial and a military point of view. It is surrounded by earthwork fortifications, from the parapets of which large siege guns frown forth upon the surrounding country and forts are erected in several commanding positions round about, like watchdogs stationed outside to guard the city. Patches of snow linger on the Palantokan Mountains, a few miles to the south. The Dev Boyu Hills, a spur of the greater Palantokans, look down on the city from the east. The broad valley of the West Euphrates stretches away westward and northward, terminating at the north in another mountain range. Repairing to the English consulate, I am gratified at finding several letters awaiting me, 
and furthermore by the cordial hospitality extended by Yosef Effendi, an Assyrian gentleman, the charge d'affaires of the consulate for the time being. Colonel E., the consul, having left recently for Trebizond and England, in consequence of numerous sword wounds received at the hands of a desperado who invaded the consulate for plunder at midnight. The colonel was a general favorite in Erzurum, and is being tenderly carried, Thursday, September 3, 1885, to Trebizond on a stretcher by relays of willing natives, no less than forty accompanying him on the road. Yusuf Effendi tells me the story of the whole lamentable affair, pausing at intervals to heap imprecations on the head of the malefactor and to bestow eulogies on the wounded consul's character. It seems that the doorkeeper of the consulate, a native of a neighboring Armenian village, was awakened at midnight by an acquaintance from the same village, who begged to be allowed to share his quarters till morning. No sooner had the servant admitted him to his room than he attacked him with his sword, intending, as it afterward leaked out, to murder the whole family, rob the house, and escape. The servant's cries for assistance awakened Colonel E., who came to his rescue without taking the trouble to provide himself with a weapon. The man, infuriated at the detection and the prospect of being captured and brought to justice, turned savagely on the consul inflicting several severe wounds on the head, hands, and face. The consul closed with him and threw him down, and called for his wife to bring his revolver. The wretch now begged so piteously for his life, and made such specious promises, that the consul magnanimously let him up, neglecting, doubtless owing to his own dazed condition from the scalp wounds, to disarm him. Immediately he found himself released, he commenced the attack again cutting and slashing like a demon, knocking the revolver from the consul's already badly wounded hand. While he yet hesitated to pull the trigger and take his treacherous assailant's life. The revolver went off as it struck the floor and wounded the consul himself in the leg. Broke it. The servant now rallied sufficiently to come to his assistance, and together they succeeded in disarming the robber who, however, escaped and bolted upstairs, followed by the servant with the sword. The consul's wife, with praiseworthy presence of mind, now appeared with a second revolver, which her husband grasped in his left hand, the right being almost hacked to pieces. Dazed and faint with the loss of blood, and, moreover, blinded by the blood flowing from the scalp wounds, it was only by sheer strength of will that he could keep from falling. At this juncture, the servant, unfortunately, appeared on the stairs, returning from an unsuccessful pursuit of the robber. Mistaking the servant with the sword in his hand for the desperado returning to the attack, and realizing his own helpless condition, the consul fired two shots at him, wounding him with both shots. The would-be murderer is now, September 3, 1885, captured and in durance vile. The servant lies here in a critical condition, and the consul and his sorrowing family are en route to England. Having determined upon resting here until Monday, I spend a good part of Friday looking about the city. The population is a mixture of Turks, Armenians, Russians, Persians, and Jews. Here I first make the acquaintance of a Persian Chai Khan, tea-drinking shop. With the exception of the difference in the beverage, there is little difference between a chai khan, 
and a Ikahve Khan. Although in the case of a swell establishment, the Chai Khan blossoms forth quite gaudily with scores of colored lamps. The tea is served scalding hot in tiny glasses, which are first half filled with loaf sugar. If the proprietor is desirous of honoring or pleasing a new or distinguished customer, he drops in lumps of sugar until it protrudes above the glass. The tea is made in a samovar, a brass vessel holding perhaps a gallon of water, with a hollow receptacle in the center for a charcoal fire. Strong tea is made in an ordinary queensware teapot that fits into the hollow. A small portion of this is poured into the glass, which is then filled up with hot water from a tap in the samovar. There is a regular Persian quarter in Erzurum, and I am not suffered to stroll through it without being initiated into the fundamental difference between the character of the Persians and the Turks. When an Osmanli is desirous of seeing me ride the bicycle, he goes honestly and straightforwardly to work at coaxing and worrying, except in very rare instances they have seemed incapable of resorting to deceit or sharp practice to gain their object. Not so childlike and honest, however, are our new acquaintances, the Persians. Several merchants gather around me, and pretty soon they cunningly begin asking me how much I will sell the bicycle for. Fifty liras, I reply, seeing the deep, deep scheme hidden beneath the superficial fairness of their observations, and thinking this will squash all further commercial negotiations. But the wily Persians are not so easily disposed of as this. Bring it round, and let us see how it is ridden, they say, and if we like it, we will purchase it for fifty liras, and perhaps make you a present besides. A Persian would rather try to gain an end by deceit than by honest and above-board methods even if the former were more trouble. Lying, cheating, and deception is the universal rule among them. Honesty and straightforwardness are unknown virtues. Anyone whom they detect telling the truth or acting honestly they consider a simpleton unfit to transact business. The missionaries and their families are at present tenting out, five miles south of the city, in a romantic little ravine called Kirk Dagaman or the place of the forty mills, and on Saturday morning I receive a pressing invitation to become their guest during the remainder of my stay. The Erzurum mission is represented by Mr. Chambers, his brother now absent on a tour, their respective families, and Miss Powers. Yusuf Effendi accompanies us out of the camp on a splendid Arab steed that curvets gracefully the whole way. Myself and the other missionary people, bicycle work at Sivas and again at Erzurum, ride more sober and decorous animals. Kirk Dagaman is found to be near the entrance to a pass over the Paladtoken Mountains. Half a dozen small tents are pitched beneath the only grove of trees for many a mile around. A dancing stream of crystal water furnishes the camp with an abundance of that necessary as also a lavish supply of such music as babbling brooks coursing madly over pebbly beds are wont to furnish. To this particular section of the little stream legendary lore has attached a story which gives the locality its name, Kirk Dagaman. Once upon a time, a worthy widow found herself the happy possessor of no less than forty small gristmills strung along the stream. 
Soon after her husband's death, the lady's amiable qualities, and not unlikely her forty mills into the bargain, attracted the admiration of a certain wealthy owner of flocks in the neighborhood, and he sought her hand in marriage. No, said the lady, who, being a widow, had perhaps acquired wisdom. No, I have forty sons, each one faithfully laboring and contributing cheerfully toward my support. Therefore, I have no use for a husband." "'I will kill your forty sons, and compel you to become my wife,' replied the suitor, in a huff at being rejected. And he went and sheared all his sheep, and, with the multitudinous fleeces, dammed up the stream, caused the water to flow into other channels, and thereby rendering the widow's forty mills useless and unproductive. With nothing but ruination before her, and seeing no alternative, the widow's heart finally softened and she suffered herself to be wooed and won. The fleeces were removed, the stream returned to its proper channel, and the merry whirr of the forty mills henceforth mingled harmoniously with the bleeding of the sheep. Two days are spent at the quiet missionary camp, and thoroughly enjoyed. It seems like an oasis of home life in the surrounding desert of uncongenial social conditions. I eagerly devour the contents of several American newspapers, and embrace the opportunities of the occasion, even to the extent of nursing the babies. Missionaries seem rare folks for babies, of which there are three in camp. The altitude of Erzurum is between 6,000 and 7,000 feet. The September nights are delightfully cool, and there are no bloodthirsty mosquitoes. I am assigned a sleeping tent close alongside a small waterfall, whose splashing music is a soporific that holds me in the bondage of beneficial repose until breakfast is announced, both mornings. And on Monday morning, I feel as though the hunger, the irregular sleep, and the rough and tumble dues generally of the past four weeks were but a troubled dream. Again, the bicycle contributes its curiosity-quickening and question-exciting powers for the benefit of the sluggish-minded pupils of the mission school. The Persian consul and his sons come to see me ride. He is highly interested upon learning that I am traveling on the wheel to the Persian capital, and he visas my passport and gives me a letter of introduction to the Pasha Khan of Ovajik, the first village I shall come to beyond the frontier. It is nearly 3 p.m. September 7th when I bid farewell to everybody and wheel out through the Persian Gate, accompanied by Mr. Chambers on horseback, who rides part way to the Dev Boyu, Camel's Neck Pass. On the way out he tells me that he has been intending taking a journey through the Caucasus this autumn, but the difficulties of obtaining permission, on account of his being a clergyman, are so great, a special permission having to be obtained from St. Petersburg, that he has about relinquished the idea for the present season. Dev Boyan Pass leads over a comparatively low range of hills. It was here where the Turkish army, in November 1877, made their last gallant attempt to stem the tide of disasters that had, by the fortunes of war and the incompetency of their commanders, set in irresistibly against them, before taking refuge inside the walls of the city. An hour after parting from Mr. Chambers, I am wheeling briskly down the same road on the eastern slope of the pass where Mukhtar Pasha's ill-fated column was drawn into the fatal ambuscade that suddenly turned the fortunes of the day against them. 
while rapidly gliding down the gentle gradient, I fancy I can see the Cossack regiments, advancing toward the Turkish position. The unwary and overconfident Osmanlis, leaping from their entrenchments to advance along the road and drive them back. Now I come to the Nabi Chai ravines, where the concealed masses of Yuzhen infantry suddenly sprang up and cut off their retreat. I fancy I can see chug, whoop, thud, stars, and see them pretty distinctly, too, for while gazing curiously about, locating the Russian ambushment, the bicycle strikes a sand hole, and I am favored with the worst header I have experienced for many a day. I am, or rather was, a minute ago, bowling along quite briskly. The header treats me to a fearful shaking up. I am sore all over the next morning, and present a sort of a stiff-necked, woe-begone appearance for the next four days. A bent handlebar and a slightly twisted rear-wheel fork likewise forcibly remind me that, while I am beyond the reach of repair shops, it will be Solomon-like wisdom on my part to henceforth survey battlefields with a larger margin of regard for things more immediately interesting. From the pass, my road descends into the broad and cultivated valley of the Passin Sioux. The road is mostly rideable, though heavy with dust. Part way to Hassan Kaleh, I am compelled to use considerable tact to avoid trouble with a gang of riotous Kalirjis whom I overtake. As I attempt to wheel past, one of them wantonly essays to thrust his stick into the wheel. As I spring from the saddle for sheer self-protection, they think I have dismounted to attack him, and his comrades rush forward to his protection, brandishing their sticks and swords in a menacing manner. Seeing himself reinforced, as it were, the bold aggressor raises his stick as though to strike me, and peremptorily orders me to bin and hadi. Very naturally, I refuse to remount the bicycle while surrounded by this evidently mischievous crew. There are about twenty of them, and it requires much self-control to prevent a conflict in which, I am persuaded, somebody would have been hurt. However, I finally manage to escape their undesirable company and ride off amid a full assad of stones. This incident reminds me of Yusuf Effendi's warning that even though I had come thus far without a Zaptia escort, I should require one now owing to the more lawless disposition of the people near the frontier. Near dark, I reach Hassan Kaleh, a large village nestling under the shadow of its former importance as a fortified town, and seek the accommodation of a Persian Chai Khan. It is not very elaborate or luxurious accommodation, consisting solely of tiny glasses of sweetened tea in the public room and a shakedown in a rough, unfurnished apartment over the stable, Eatables have to be obtained elsewhere, but it matters little so long as they are obtainable somewhere. During the evening, a Persian troubadour and storyteller entertains the patrons of the Chai Khan by singing ribaldish songs, twanging a tambourine-like instrument, and telling stories in a sing-song tone of voice. In deference to the mixed nationality of his audience, the sagacious troubadour wears a Turkish fez, a Persian coat, and a Yuzhen metallic-faced belt. The burden of his songs are of Erzurum, Erzingen, and Ispahan. 
the russians it would appear are too few and unpopular to justify risking the displeasure of the turks by singing any yushin songs so far as my comprehension goes the stories are chiefly of intrigue and love affairs among pashas and would quickly bring the righteous retributions of the lord chamberlain down upon his ears were he telling them to an english audience i have no small difficulty in getting the bicycle up the narrow and crooked stairway into my sleeping apartment there is no fastening of any kind on the door and the proprietor seems determined upon treating every subject of the shah in hassan Kaleh to a private confidential exhibition of myself and bicycle after i have retired to bed it must be near midnight i think when i am again awakened from my uneasy oft-disturbed slumbers by murmuring voices and the shuffling of feet examining the bicycle by the feeble glimmer of a classic lamp are a dozen meddlesome persians annoyed at their unseemly midnight intrusion and at being repeatedly awakened i rise up and sing out at them rather authoritatively i have exhibited the merifet of my smith and wesson during the evening and these intruders seem really afraid i might be going to practice on them with it the persians are apparently timid mortals they evidently regard me as a strange being of unknown temperament who might possibly break loose and encompass their own destruction on the slightest provocation and the proprietor and another equally intrepid individual hurriedly come to my couch and pat me soothingly on the shoulders after which they all retire and i am disturbed no more till morning the rocky road to dublin is nothing compared to the road leading eastward from hassan Kaleh for the first few miles but afterward it improves into very fair wheeling eleven miles down to Pasiu Su Valley brings me to the Armenian village of Quipriqui. Having breakfasted before starting, I wheel on without halting, crossing the Araxis River at the junction of the Pasin Su on a very ancient stone bridge known as the Chebankurpi, or the Bridge of Pastures, said to be over a thousand years old. Nearing Dele Baba Pass, a notorious place for robbers, I pass through a village of sedentary cords. Soon after leaving the village, a wild-looking cord, mounted on an angular sorrel, overtakes me and wants me to employ him as a guard while going through the pass. Backing up the offer of his presumably valuable services by unsheathing a semi-rusty sword and waving it valiantly aloft, he intimates by tragically graphic pantomime that unless i traverse the pass under the protecting shadow of his ancient and rusty blade i will be likely to pay the penalty of my rashness by having my throat cut yusuf effendi and the erzeron missionaries have thoughtfully warned me against venturing through the delhi baba pass alone advising me to wait and go through with a persian caravan but this cord looks like anything but a protector on the contrary, I am inclined to regard him as a suspicious character himself, interviewing me, perhaps, with ulterior ideas of a more objectionable character than that of faithfully guarding me through the Delhi Baba Pass. Showing him the shell-extracting mechanism of my revolver, and explaining the rapidity with which it can be fired, I give him to understand that I feel quite capable of guarding myself. Consequently, have no earthly use for his services. 
a tea caravan of some two hundred camels are resting near the approach to the pass, affording me an excellent opportunity of having company through by waiting and journeying with them in the night. But warnings of danger have been repeated so often of late, and they have proved themselves groundless so invariably, that I should feel the taunts of self-reproach were I to find myself hesitating to proceed on their account. Passing over a mountain spur, I descend into a rocky cannon, with perpendicular walls of rock towering skyward like giant battlements, enclosing a space not over fifty yards wide. Through this runs my road, and alongside it babbles the Delhi Baba Su. The cannon is a wild, lonely-looking spot, and looks quite appropriate to the reputation it bears. Professor Vambury, a recognized authority on Asiatic matters, and whose party encountered a gang of marauders here, says the Delhi Baba Pass bore the same unsavory reputation that it bears today, as far back as the time of Herodotus. However, suffice it to say, that I get through without molestation. Mountain men, armed to the teeth, like almost everybody else hereabouts, are encountered in the pass, they invariably halt and look back after me as though endeavoring to comprehend who and what I am. But that is all. Emerging from the cannon, I follow in a general course the tortuous windings of the Delhi Baba Su through another ravine riven battlefield of the late war, and up toward its source in a still more mountainous and elevated region beyond. End of section 36 Recording by William Tomko.